This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. Hello, Utah families. I'm Liz Rivera, the Director of Education at Utah Foster Care. Deborah Lindner, our main pilot, is feeling under the weather today, so I'll be flying solo. I'd also like to recognize Marshall Shear Davis as our producer. He does a lot to make us sound as good as we possibly can. So we want to talk today about what is wrong with you? So many of us have heard that question, and many of us have even asked that question of other people, sometimes of our kids. What is wrong with you? when we get just really frustrated with somebody or sometimes with ourselves, we can say it to ourselves, what's wrong with me when we're frustrated with our own behavior? So today um, we're actually gonna change that question. And instead of asking what's wrong with you, we're gonna ask what's happened to you. That is actually the name of a new book that many of you hopefully have read by Dr. Perry and Oprah Winfrey. The title of the book really sets the stage, which is what happened to you. That's the question we should be asking is understanding a human being in context. So today we are so privileged to have Brian Young and Les Harris. We had the wonderful occasion to meet um, in person with our cluster facilitators around the state of Utah. Brian and Les led a book club discussion about the book, What Happened to You. After it was over, everybody was just kept saying that could have gone on for another hour, another two hours. It could have gone on all day because it was such a rich conversation. So just real quick introduction for those of you who are Uh, Utah foster parents, you probably know Brian and you probably know Les. And if you do, you're lucky. Both Brian and Les have been with Utah foster care for 22 years. Actually, this month, I believe, did you both start in October? Okay, so they both started in October of 1999, which doesn't seem that long ago until you realize that it's actually 2021. That was actually 22 years ago. So I've been I've been lucky to have been working with Brian and Les during this time. We've all been trainers. Brian is the trainer for the northern region, and Les is the trainer for eastern region. And uh, luckily, they they also make their way around the rest of the state. So many of you have probably had the opportunity to hear from them. And then, of course, in this last year and a half, when so much has been online, many of you have probably been able to hear from them maybe for the first time. So um, we're just going to jump right into it. And I'm going to ask Les to share his initial thoughts about the book and why this book is a must read for all human beings, not just foster parents. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. One of the things that occurred to me as I began to read the book is there's so many concepts that were familiar, yet they were being presented in a way that was innovative in terms of understanding the concepts differently than the way I have ever looked at them before. And so I felt like that the way it was presented, the conversational nature of the book, uh, not only helped me understand concepts better. And I've been doing this, as you said, for now in over my career for 32 years. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm gaining this new insight into the effects of trauma and how we are impacted in ways that we probably have never really fully understood and probably still need to understand. And I, I felt like it was a very significant eye-opener for me, even though I, I've considered myself somebody that <laughs> is well-versed in the effects of trauma on, on child development and how to help people heal. Thank you. And that's a kind of a humbling thought to think that 
even after all these years of training other people, we still have so much to learn, but also what a wonderful opportunity it is to learn and, and to learn from somebody like, like Dr. Perry and of course, Oprah Winfrey. Okay, Brian, same question. Why is this book a must read? I think Les said it very well. I've been in child welfare about the same time he has, and I kind of thought I was getting it. And I kind of thought it was starting to make sense. Reading this book helped me realize how much there still is to learn and how much we can learn and help other people learn by putting these principles into practice. I thought the other day about this, and I think probably Les would agree, and probably you too, Liz, the, I don't think there's ever been a time that we haven't been asking ourselves, how can we make this more effective for people that we're working with? How can we help them understand more of what this means and how it relates to their interactions with the children they're taking care of? And this book opened up a lot of those doors that I think we've all been wanting for a long time. I mean, we've known in the last decade or so, we've known learned so much about how the brain functions, how it's affected by its environment, how that then translates into behaviors in the future. But the way this book describes it, like Les said, it just feels like it's doable. It feels like you can understand this and you can, it makes sense. I mean, concepts that we used to look at and scratch our heads, we now look at and go, that makes sense. And if it makes sense, then there's there's something you can do about it. So I was really excited the first time to read it for me, the second time to read it for kids. And now I'm going through it again to read it for how I can help those taking care of kids in understanding what those behaviors mean, where they're coming from, and how we can approach them in such a way that we can not only help the kids learn in the moment, but translate into future behaviors changing so their outcomes are better for them. That's great. And I, I think that's, to me, one of the biggest recommendations for any book is, is a book that's worth reading and rereading. And this is definitely a rich one. So Les, how does, how does trauma affect brain development? How does it affect behavior in children and even in adults? Uh, what, is, what is the role of trauma in our lives? Well, one of the things I liked uh, when I read the book was that trauma affects all of us differently. There's many examples where Dr. Perry talked about that in the case of, say, a burning building where a fifth grader that was across the hall may not have experienced it the same way as the, the second grader who was right in the middle of a fire at the school, for example. And even the fireman, him or herself, would, would experience that differently. So I like the idea that, that we, we talk about trauma in the context of the personal experience and how that then impacts their, their ability to, to access the regions of the brain necessary to get through those difficult experiences. And I've talked about this for years. I mean, I go back to you know, Daniel Siegel, Tina Bryce, and all the books about trauma and the effects of trauma on, on children and using concepts like upstairs, downstairs brain to help people make sense of what's really happening. But for the first time, as Dr. Perry talked about how that information gets filtered through that lower part of the brain. And if it gets stuck there based on some evocative cue from our past, from our trauma, that that activates that stress response system, which essentially means the information doesn't get back up to the thinking part of the brain. And, you know, I've, I've understood the concept for so many years, but that made sense. And it gave me hope that that would make more sense for the people we're helping, that we're trying to approach children in so many ways through the thinking part of the brain. As a matter of fact, we look at 
the approach for many therapists and others that through trauma-centered cognitive behavioral therapy, when in reality, children are not accessing that part of the brain and we have to help to calm the storm, so to speak. We have to work in such a way to help children, A, feel safe so that they can regulate that stress response system long enough to get to that part of the brain where it starts to make sense. Even though I understood the concept, the way it was presented made it feel more hopeful. I think that's one thing we've also tried to do through the years is to provide some hope. Being realistic, you know, we, we never want to sugarcoat the difficulty of, of foster care and the lasting effects of trauma, but always balanced with realistic hope, I think is, is essential. And I think that comes through really clear in, in the book. So Brian, same question for you. How does trauma affect behavior? Well, I'm going to have to agree with Les again. That to me was the number one takeaway overall from reading the book. There was so much information in it, but when I got done reading it, that concept alone was worth the entire book. I mean, when he described the upside down triangle picture of the brain that he described in the book, there's so many answers to so many questions. And just that, when something happens and our brain has a input from one of our senses, it always goes through the bottom part first before it gets to the top part. And as I've had discussions with people about this, it starts to make sense. You can see the aha moments when people think, okay, so I've taught my child how to handle this so many times that I've been so frustrated when the same situation happens and they go right to that same behavior that we've been trying to get rid of and trying to change. And I'm starting to understand that it isn't as much that they haven't learned what I've been trying to teach them as that in that moment, it's not available to them to grab a hold of it and to make those changes in behavior. That when our brain senses something, it automatically looks at it from that protection, fear-based survival part of the brain that says, is this potentially going to hurt me? And it compares it to all the previous experiences we've had. And if a child's had some experiences that are similar, that raise that threat level, so to speak, in their brain, all that stuff that they've learned in the upper part of their brain becomes less accessible. And if it gets to the point where it is completely shut off, it's not a matter of a child choosing to not do what we've asked them to learn and tried to help them learn. It's a matter of it's not available for them to do it. And what we need to do is help them learn then how to calm that lower brain down and be available to move up into the upper brain where that information is being accessed. The other part of that that has struck me is our, as the caregivers part in that as well, and how that applies to us. Because we have all these plans in our upper brain of how we're going to help these children. We have great ideas on how we're going to put that stuff into practice. And when a moment happens, maybe a child has a response that goes into our lower brain and reminds us about how much we hate when a child responds like that. All of a sudden, we start to ramp up. And the more our lower brain starts to ramp up, the less our upper brain information is available as well. So all of a sudden, we have a child who's in that lower brain function. We allow ourselves to gravitate to that lower brain function. And we've got two lower brains battling it out. And we all know where that goes. And it's the same principle. So teaching them is just as much by example as it is by words. We can do something that they're going to pick up on that by learning from watching us do it helps them to 
calm themselves down. I know there was many times in the book that they talked about emotions being contagious. Let them catch your calm, not your crisis. If we are able to manage ourselves and regulate ourselves, we put them in a much better place to be able to access that information and regulate themselves. So I agree with Les. To me, that was probably the most important concept with regards to trauma and how it affects us is how the brain processes it and how we can have that information, but it may not be available. And how do we make it available? How do we help people understand that it's there? We just need to find a way to regulate and get to it. So, you know, you talked about the parent maybe being triggered or as Les loves to say, the has an evocative cue of, you know, whatever the child's behavior is that gets them dropped down into their lower brain. How do we as adults recognize we're moving from the upstairs down to the downstairs brain? How do we catch that? How do we interrupt that in the moment? How do we do what we, we know we want to do, but sometimes it doesn't come naturally. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, And if I had the perfect answer to that, Oprah and I would write a book and we'd be out on a book tour ourselves. I guess we could include Dr. Perry in it as well. That would probably be good. So to your question, this is coming a lot from my own personal observations. I think that our body, our brain wants really bad to not go to that downstairs place, if at all possible. I think we crave regulation. I think we want to feel balanced. Otherwise, we wouldn't jump down there and immediately try to find our way out of it. So I think our body tries to tell us when those things are starting to happen, whether it be a change in our breathing rate, whether it be change in our heart rate. I remember working with a guy years ago, and he said, I don't know how I can tell when that's starting to happen. And his wife said, I know when it's going to happen. And he said, how? And she said, you start to sweat. She says, I see sweat beads starting to form on your forehead. I know you're losing it. And he wasn't even aware of that. And over the years in talking to people, some people will say, I notice I clench my teeth. I notice I make fists. I notice my muscles start to tense up. I think that our body starts to prepare us for that fight, flight, freeze, reaction, by ramping our systems up a little bit. So I guess what I'm trying to get to is how do we know when we're going there? We pay attention a little bit to our own body's signals. I think you, your voice tone starts to change. Your voice gets louder. You, your facial expression starts to change. If we can become more aware and just by saying it doesn't mean it's going to happen. I think over time, we just learn to watch for those things. Maybe we, if we have faith and trust in a confidant or a partner or a a spouse or somebody who knows us really well, and we can say, if you see me starting to do that stuff, give me a heads up, which is, could be dangerous when you're in that mode and your spouse looks at you and says, by the way, you're starting to lose it. I'm sure that'll calm you right down. But as we learn about ourselves, I believe the more we put attention towards being aware of that, the more we will be aware of that. If I'm telling myself that I know I have that issue and I'm watching for it in those moments when I haven't completely lost it yet, and I'm still in enough of my upper brain that I can recognize I'm doing it, I have a moment there that I can say, okay, take a breath, calm down. I know where this is going if I don't. So in my view, it's, it's a real personal thing for every person. But the thing is learning 
what your body is trying to tell you. Because we, we do that with kids, don't we? I mean, when we hear a child's voice tone change or when we see them start to do a certain thing, we know where they're headed and we want them to stop before they get there. So we help them try and recognize, you know, when you start doing this, that's when you start really getting upset. I think it's just applying it to ourselves and being able to put ourselves in a place where we recognize that before it happens. It does. Yeah. And I think it's that that recognition and, and also recognizing that moment that we still have more choice to be conscious of that. Okay, Les, what's your best wisdom for uh, self-regulation and how we can be aware of ourselves and, and regulate it? Well, the brain has a unique ability to help us understand, at least that's what it's designed to do, to help us understand exactly what's what's happening, what's coming. It's design, It's doing its job by, as Brian said, sending signals to the system that something is out of balance. Something is now uh, dysregulated and, and the body and the brain really thrive on a state of homeostasis balance. And so when there's this state of dysregulation, we're out of balance. Yes, the brain is gonna send these signals to the system hey, let's get back to that state of balance. So as Brian said, the body's sending signals, whether it's pulse rates, breathing rates, uh, gnashing of teeth, whatever we're doing uh, to suddenly uh, give us a signal that, hey, we're in a state of emotional dysregulation. We need to restore that. Now, you're right. That Just because we recognize that doesn't mean we're going to be good at it. We have to remember a couple of things. One is, that we've likely done it a certain way for so long that behaviorally we've reinforced our reactions to children when they become emotionally dysregulated. So it's almost as though many of us now have been conditioned to respond the ways we do that are very counterproductive to helping the child learn to self-regulate. And because that's a learned behavior, it becomes a little harder to change. So as we get better at self-awareness, we put ourselves in a better position to recognize when we're becoming stressed and to be able to learn ways to self-regulate. Now, in the moment, that's very difficult to do. I will agree, but the better we get at recognizing our own state, the better we get at managing it when it happens. However, uh, and I think this is one of the things in the book that I, I enjoyed as well, was this idea that in order to get good at self-regulation, we have to do some self-care, <laughs> meaning we have to take opportunities before we ever reach a state of emotional dysregulation to train our bodies how to be emotionally regulated. So if we're doing the self-care, we're taking time for us, we're learning to relax, we're engaging in exercise and other methods to help us learn to just get restored to a state of balance, that's likely going to be one of the things, and I think it's often the most overlooked ways of helping us learn to be more emotionally self-regulated. So yes, we do have to recognize our own state of emotional dysregulation when a child is dysregulated, but we gotta get better at doing it before that ever happens. We have to learn to train our brain to access those opportunities to relax and to be to restore ourselves to a state of regulation. So adding to what Brian said, I would add in that self-care piece, because I think that's critical to training our brain how to get to that place more rapidly. 
So I just want to jump onto a couple of things Les said that I really appreciate that we need to think about. One, as we talk about that self-regulation and training ourselves how to manage our own behaviors better, if we've, like he said, if we've established a pattern with a child that they know a certain look on our face, they know a certain tone to our voice and where that's going to go, if all of a sudden that's different because we're trying to do it better, the child's brain doesn't understand necessarily right off the bat why it's different. We're trying to do it better because we know the outcomes will be better. But just like everything else that enters a child's brain at the bottom of their brain, it's different. And we know that things that are different are initially looked at as potentially harmful, potentially threatening, because we don't have any information. And I say this because over the years, as I've, I've talked with some foster parents and, and they've blessed their hearts, really put a lot of energy and effort into trying to change their behaviors because they don't like how they react in those moments. They become frustrated because the child's behavior actually worsened. It declined when they tried to be better. They fought them more than they would have fought them had they just sent them to the room or grounded them or whatever. And they're thinking, well, it's not working. It's just making it worse. When in actuality, that's a clear sign that it is getting their attention because it is different. And the fact that it's different is not a bad thing. You're trying to do it a different way to improve the outcome. They're giving you a response that says, I don't know what's going on here. I'm not seeing that same look on your face, that same tone to your voice. I don't know if I trust this. Can I trust it? So their reaction is different than what you expect, but it's a good sign. And, and like Les said, it's a, it's a process. I mean, this is a, a challenge we all face in any behavior change. So kind of wanted to throw that out there because we commit to these good changes and we want to do good things. And when you really understand the brain, that new thing that they're going to be experiencing from us will be looked at initially as potentially something they shouldn't trust or something that could be harmful or threatening until it becomes consistent enough and they see the outcomes are positive enough that they learn that they can trust it. That's the first thing he made me think about. And the other thing about self-care, I want to agree with him 100%. And I frequently, I know we all do. When we talk about self-care, whenever I do a training on taking care of yourself, the first thing I hear from people is, I don't have time. There's too many things on my plate. If I take 30 minutes for me, it takes me three hours to clean up the mess that happened in those 30 minutes. And I just kind of like to say to people, and don't get me wrong, I have no solution, but I like to say to people, think of it as if you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you see that little battery symbol show up on your dashboard, which is clearly telling you there's something wrong with your electrical system in your car. You can say, if you want to, I don't have time to deal with this. I'm too busy. It's not gonna, I, I can't. It's just something I can't give any attention to right now. You can ignore it if you want, but after a day or two, your car is gonna tell you that you should have given it some attention. When you go in to start it up one morning and it doesn't start because the battery's dead. We are no different. We don't have endless abilities. We don't have endless energy. We don't have endless anything to give. We have to take care of ourselves. And how that happens for each of us is very personal and individual. But to neglect that, we are actually putting ourselves and the children, the families that we're taking care of in a situation where we're not going to have everything to give, anything to give them. You can't give someone something you don't have. So again, like I said, no actual solution, but it's absolutely critical, I think, that everyone recognizes our humanness 
and our inability to be going 100 miles an hour all the time. We don't help anybody that way. And once again, like you guys are talking about emotions being catching, you know, if you have a parent who is, you know, just so pressed all the time, so frantic almost, that itself is affecting our relationship with the child. I just had a little bit of an aha moment, which I always do in talking to either one of you for any length of time. But when you talked about, you know, that self-care, your brain being able to recognize that regulated feeling that that how important that is. And I never really thought about that, that self-care is really practicing regulation. And I have to practice that because I can't get somewhere where I've never been. I think that's what gets missed is we focus so much on trying to understand the child's reaction and response to their traumatic history and and try to help them make sense of it. But we, we have to be able to access our thinking brain as well. I mean, I think one of the things that keeps getting missed here, it's not simply about helping a child manage difficult emotions and behaviors. And even when I start new groups or I'm teaching general parenting to a group, I really do focus on this isn't helping you learn how to help children regulate as much as it is about helping you learn to regulate your emotions. Because ultimately, when we talk about parenting, the word parent is the the primary focus of that word. It's not about childrening, (laughs) if that's a word. I just made up a new word, right? It's parenting, which means I have to focus on what I'm doing in order to be effective. And I think that's what gets missed. We are so eager to change the behaviors of children we miss that my approach is often contributing sometimes to the very behaviors that we would like to go away. And I agree with Brian, which I I infrequently do. (laughs) But it's interesting because Brian and I haven't communicated about this, but he said the the light on the dashboard, which is a battery. I've talked about this for years. If your check engine light comes on on your dashboard, I've said that very thing. And so that check engine light comes on means you ignore that bad things are going to happen. And that's true of our regulatory system. If we ignore our regulatory system, then it just continues to be hypersensitized to the things that are happening around us. Stress contributes (laughs) and excessive stress in particular contributes to activation of a stress response in all of us. Not because you've had a traumatic history, but because that's what stress does. And then the brain is doing what it's supposed to do by saying, okay, you're stressed and we're activating your stress response and we're going to produce all these emotions and behaviors that become very impulsive and irrational. And in the context of helping a child, you know what? Not going to work. We all know that. We know our thinking brains right now and all of you listening can hear that once we lose the ability to access the thinking brain and we're responding, as Brian said, that we're not effective anymore. And so... Absolutely, we have to retrain ourselves, again, as I said, to access those core regulatory systems that we have to strengthen, we have to make stronger so that when stressors happen, we're increasingly capable of managing it as opposed to reacting to it. I really did have a different experience when I read the book for me with my idea of how does this impact me? How does this apply to me? as I did when I read it for how does it apply to the children that we're trying to take care of it really 
was different looking at it through that different lens because like we've said we've all dealt with trauma and we all had certain things that happened to us when we were younger that wired our brains certain ways that affect us certain ways like les said earlier not everyone responds the same to different situations that happen and so i encourage people to look at the book not just for how can i help kids but absolutely how does this apply to me as well. And it just gives you a, a different lens. We've all had experiences where people will go through our classes before they even touch foster care. And they're like, I'm a totally different parent now. I'm now seeing the way my interactions are, are affecting my children and how I can help that. And it's a beautiful day when you realize that what we're after is interaction, not reaction. And we have a role in that as the parent and the caregiver. It's not just about, here's what I want you to do. It's about modeling what works better. We all bring our own stuff into this field and this work, you know? And so listening to that book, I think if parents listen to it first, thinking what happened to you, we're thinking about what happened to you, you somebody else. But really what happened to you is the reader of the book. And we can learn so much about ourselves, which then you know will allow us to be more open to learning about the children in our care. Okay, Les, I want to talk about one of your favorite terms, evocative cues. Why do you prefer that over the word that we use a lot, which is triggers? It just really captured, I think, what's happening. We've used the term triggers for so long, you know, triggering memories of traumatic experience. But it's more than that. This evocative cue and the way it was at least described and, and made sense to me was it evokes a feeling that occurred to me while I was going through this very difficult experience, whether it was abuse, neglect, or turmoil, or the fact that a parent is not present or emotionally available. All of those things combined can create a circumstance where it evokes painful memories and emotions, yes, but then it also causes me to respond in a way to protect myself from the most difficult parts of those experiences. And so when we start to, to look at it the way, at least it makes sense to me, it evokes not only the emotion, but the behavior that I used to get through that moment. That has helped me in a sense survive and get to where I am right now. The only thing I know is to use those behaviors when those emotions are evoked. When those painful experiences are evoked, I default to the things that worked when that was happening. And so now in the context of a foster care placement, adoptive placement, I am essentially reproducing the very behaviors that helped me in an environment where they're not going to be useful anymore but I don't know that. That's all I know. And I will use that until somebody that I can feel safe with, somebody I can trust teaches me how to do it differently. I think that's why the, the terminology meant something more than just triggering painful memories. The term itself was evocative. Yeah, I think so. It really struck me in that moment that it's more than just accessing painful memories. It's evoking parts of me that were useful and important for me to get through hard things. And we get stuck, all of us. I mean, we have been conditioned, I believe, as a society, individually, to see a behavior and to give it a consequence. 
that that's how we teach. That's how a child will learn not to do the behavior anymore. But we have approached that, as Brian had mentioned earlier, as though they have access to the thinking part of the brain where they can make those rational conclusions between if A happens, then B will occur. We're assuming that they have the ability to do that and they don't. And so when we start to say words like consequences really don't work, but in the moment, the behavior really doesn't matter in a sense. What is important is to help the child regulate long enough that they can access that part of the brain where they say, oh, I'm angry. And when I get angry, I hit my sister, I throw my toys, I break things. It's okay to be angry, but how can I teach you how to manage that anger differently? Because the behavioral outcomes of that anger are simply things that the child is doing to survive a hard thing. I think one reason why foster parents and adoptive parents can get so confused is is that the kids do things that doesn't make any sense. But if we think about it in the context you're talking about, there's been some evocative cue that has evoked these, these memories, these feelings, these behaviors that have worked in the past. It makes perfect sense to the child's lower brain particularly, but it doesn't make any sense to the foster parents. So once again, going back to this idea, we need to see our kids in context. So instead of thinking, oh my gosh, what is wrong with you? to think this means something's happened, that something has evoked this in this child. And maybe it isn't even the foster parent, maybe it's something else in the environment that has evoked that. I think so many times we think our kids are making bad choices when they're not making choices at all. They're just responding to these evocative cues. And as we understand that more, we're, we're better able to understand those behaviors and context and respond in a way that is, that is more appropriate. Brian, what do you wanna say about evocative cues? I liked what he said when when he talked about the fact that we see a behavior in a child that may have been cued by something and we respond in a certain way because we want to teach them that's not okay, you don't need to do that, we want you to do something different. But somewhere in there, there's we need to have evocative cues be a positive thing as well, that they can experience a positive side of that choice being made differently and the outcomes that come from that. It's kind of like we'd rather invite a different behavior than come down on and punish the behavior in the moment. Because like he said, what's going on in the moment isn't really as important as what they're learning for future situations. And so if we can help them learn that even though they have those things that cue those behaviors in them, there are ways of working around that and teaching a different behavior, a different approach that brings a positive outcome so that they can understand if those that are caring for me help me understand that choice that I made didn't bring an outcome that I really, really want, I can make a different choice. I can choose something different that will give me a different outcome. I've always believed that effective parenting is way more focused on future situation and behaviors than it is on the present one. That one's happened. All we can do is look at that one and deal with the outcome of it. But if we can teach in that moment how maybe to get a different outcome in the future, we become a whole lot more effective in helping the child manage those behaviors down the road than always looking towards what happened. What's going to happen? How can we change what might happen? That has a lot more hope in it for me than, man, I messed up again. Another consequence. Let's hope I don't do it again today. Well, If someone doesn't help me see how I can do it differently, then chances are I'm going to do it again. Because like he said, I don't know what else to do. That's what I've learned. And when that situation happens, that's what I've learned to do. And until someone teaches me another something, that's all I got. And which then speaks to what we've already talked about, the 
essential nature then of that felt security in relationship so that that teaching can occur. The response is calmed to more access to the thinking brain. And what you guys are talking about too reminds me so much of the essential nature of the integration of the upstairs and downstairs brain. And what I'm hearing you, Brian, talk about is giving information to the upstairs brain that can help contextualize and calm the lower brain. Like hopefully a lot of us do when we get anxious about something, we, we, we use our thinking brain to tell our lower brain, this is just that thing you always get nervous about. Everything's really okay. It's not the end of the world. And we kind of develop this self-talk of our upper brain to our lower brain. And so the integration of those pieces is so essential. Yeah, that to me is the crux of all of this. I mean, it's really great to say, well, when the bottom brain's in charge, you can't access the top brain. Okay, so am I going to spend the rest of my life doing that? Somewhere I read that the idea is you take those moments of bottom brain reactivity and in a situation where you have access to the top brain, you're not in that moment in where you're reacting that way. But later on, whenever, when you've calmed that moment down and you have some upper brain possibilities, we can talk about what happened in that moment. We're not reacting to it in that moment like we were two hours ago when we threw the fit. But two hours down the road, we can talk about what happened and, and what caused that fit and what could have been different. And by doing that, we integrate those the upper and, and lower brains and we use the upper brain to say, okay, next time that happens, what can I do differently? We get a plan and then we use what we talked about earlier, that recognizing the cues for, of our own body when we're starting to lose something. While we still have some access to the upper brain, we put that plan a little bit into place. And like Les said, over time, we basically rewire our brain to handle that certain situation a different way. And the more we re-experience that and reinforce that new wiring, the more default that one becomes. And we start having the ability to have more control in that moment when before it would have been just a reaction and a blow up and no upper brain capacity at all. And we start engaging that upper brain at a time when it can be strengthened for future situations when we might need it. Makes me think then again about what Les was talking about, you know, that we have to have the experience of regulation in order for that to sort of be our set point. And our kids need that too, as well as that cognitive information about what happened and thinking about it and considering different pathways also that experience of being regulated and, and giving our kids lots of opportunity to have that regulated set point. Like Dr. Perry, one thing I know, and he's talked about this for years, is that kids aren't resilient. And I know when people hear that, they're like, what? What do you mean kids aren't resilient? But he talks about resilient as going back to an original form. And he says, and kids are developing. They don't have an original form. But when I think about this idea that we want to try to create a form that we do want them to go back to, and that would be this, this felt security regulated place. And that experiences with us and teaching them in a gentle, calm way uh, relationally is going to become part of those evocative cues then in the future. I want to talk a little bit about another aha moment for me in the book was therapeutic doses and how it doesn't always have to be this really monumental experience that it can just really be these short, quick bursts of connection that can make such a difference. And I was, I want to ask Les if he wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about that idea. And that again was another one of the concepts that really struck me is that sometimes our approach to helping children has been to probably overwhelm them with too much of their own traumatic experience. And then they're going back into that protective mode to essentially push away and avoid 
having to to manage such difficult memories. Uh, and so when we talk about uh, therapeutic doses, and I love the example from the book, for those of you who have read it, will remember the little boy who witnessed his mother being killed and in the grocery store looked at the clerk and simply said, uh, my mom died. That was it. I mean, my, something very simple. My mother died and the, the clerk, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. And but the father misinterpreted that to me. Oh, he's ready to talk about that. And he went out of his way to, to try to say it's okay. And he threw the parking lot and the boy became so dysregulated that he, he started running through the parking lot in unsafe ways. So I think we have to look for, in a sense, those opportunities when a child needs you to be present in the moment and respond to something that they may have said or done that, that would give them a dose to help them make sense of that moment in time. They don't need to understand everything in that moment. They need to understand, I'm experiencing something now. I need that dose. I need to understand or make sense right now of what's happening. And then I'm good. And, and I kind of started to look at it as we're taking an antibiotic for a bacteria and we have to do a dose on a regular, consistent basis. And I think that's important to understand that those small doses can sustain us until the next time that we need something, right? Those small doses are the things that sustain us through the difficulties until I need it again. That's the way I'm looking at these doses. And I feel like that's such a, an important message, not only to our foster adoptive families, but we ought to start looking at that as, as clinicians who are putting kids in rooms and doing play therapy and all this other stuff and trying to have them access the thinking part of their brain when possibly what we're doing is, is overwhelming them in the moment. And, and, and again, Dr. Perry gives several examples of his approach to helping a child simply feel safe enough that they can offer us signals, cues on how to respond to them in more productive or helpful ways. Yeah. That's the thing when you talk about antibiotic, we don't, we don't take the whole bottle at once. You know, no. we ha it has to be administered over time in, in those doses. We sometimes feel like we want to cure, you know, or help these kids all at once when it's actually something that much better in consistent doses over a time. Brian, what do you want to add? There's never really much to add after less talks, but there's a couple of things he said that made me think about it. I loved how many times in this book and other books that I've read by Dr. Perry, his approach to a therapeutic intervention with a child sometimes would require numerous sessions, if you want to call them, of him never saying a word. That he would go in and he would get on the floor with a child or he would just sit there in the room with a child, basically allowing the child to be in charge of the interaction, to determine how much interaction, if any, what kind of interaction. He would not say anything and the child would be on a floor drawing on a piece of paper and he'd get on the floor and start drawing on a piece of paper. And it just reinforced to me how important it is that we allow the children to dictate when they're ready for something and how much they're ready for. And, and like Les said, there should be some sense of relief. So many people come into this thinking, I need to help this child fix what's happened to them so it's not going to affect them anymore. So we get this idea, we're going to sit down, we're going to talk it through and it's going to be done or we're going to send them to therapy and it's going to be taken care of. I also liked what Dr. Perry said about therapy. Therapy in and of itself, not his words, mine, basically worthless, unless it's put into practice 
in a way that it makes sense to the child in those little doses. The responsibility of that on the caregiver's part is we're ready to give those little doses when those opportunities present themselves, but it is just a little dose. It's not necessary to solve. It's just the opportunity to resolve in that moment what's going on in the head right now. What brought that statement out? We, it, we deal with that and, and they'll think about that and then another statement will come. So having the, the willingness to allow the child to dictate how that happens and the speed and the frequency, I think is a really important concept. We could go on for hours, but in the end, it's taking the information and saying, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to ignore it and hope that my situation improves? All of a sudden, the child heals and begins to progress in ways that uh, I find favorable. Okay, well, we recognize that, that that's typically never going to work. We have to produce in ourselves something different in order to facilitate the healing. And that I think that's one of the critical messages overall is this is your opportunity to understand this in ways that maybe you never have and now do something with it, apply it, begin to use the information in ways that will help you. Because if we keep doing the same thing, and I, I've heard Dr. Perry in previous conferences say, you know, I think for many years we've been doing it wrong because we got so caught up in trying to change behavior that we missed out on what happened to this child. This is our opportunity if we look at it through this new lens of what happened to you. You know, I did a training for Les a couple of weeks ago, and what he said just reminded me, at the end of the training, the question was asked how people felt about what we had talked about, because we basically talked about the book again. And a gentleman, I don't know who he was, but he just kind of essentially said, this has been the most miserable two hours of my life. I now have to go home and apologize to my wife. I have to apologize to my kids because I've not known this stuff. I now realize that there's a whole bunch of reasons why things are happening that I've been missing that I now need to catch up on. And I just so appreciated him doing exactly what Les just said. You hear something and it'd be really easy to go, you know, I'm too old to change. They'll just, they're used to me the way I am. More often than not, things are okay. But he heard that and he said, I know I need to do something different. And I just so appreciated that, uh, especially after you said the most miserable two hours of my life. It was great to hear that part <laughs> as you filled in the blanks towards the end. But I agree, that's what needs to happen. I, I just hope anything we said today has sparked some desire in someone that hasn't to pick this book up. And I guarantee you it will help. Thank you, guys. I, I really hope this has inspired folks um, who haven't read it to, to get it and read it. Uh, a lot of us have listened to the audiobook, which is wonderful because Dr. Perry and Oprah are actually, they voice their parts. And so it really feels like you're eavesdropping on this amazing conversation. And if you have read it, to read it again. And one thing that as Les and Brian were talking about, you know, the importance now of, of taking this material and putting it into practice, think too again about the idea of that therapeutic dose. So we're not asking you to change your entire life and your entire personality and your entire approach, but think about what 
what small thing could I change? What therapeutic dose could I take from this book, employ it, and then you make that part of who you are and then come back and, and take another therapeutic dose. You know, this doesn't have to be all at once, just like healing isn't all at once. Our learning and our approach doesn't have to change all at once either. So thank you guys. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Les, so much today. Once again, foster parents, if you get a chance to go to a training that uh, Brian Young or Les Harris does, uh, take it every time, whether it's online or in person, because they are wonderful. And I've, like I said, I've had the opportunity to learn from them for many, many years. And, and they are, they're definitely two of the people that I would consider incredibly influential in my life and my work. So just remember foster parents to get an hour of training credit. You can listen to the podcast and then go to the form and fill that out. And we'll make sure you get credit for that. We'll also put links to the book, a couple links to Dr. Siegel's work as well, because there's just so many dovetails. And we're so grateful for you for listening today. We know this is this is an hour. Usually we are half an hour. Um, so your dog got an extra long walk today, or maybe you made a, a more elaborate dinner because you had an hour to listen instead of half an hour. But we're so grateful um, for you for listening and especially grateful for your work with children in the care of the state of Utah. We'll see you next month. And we'll hope that Deborah's feeling better then. I'm sure she will be. And so long for now. Take care. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.